right, I am Mitch Maley, and welcome to another edition of the Bradenton Times podcast. Very special guest this week, none other than, breaks my heart to say it, former Manatee County Administrator Sherry Corrier. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Our listeners are eager to hear from you. And uh, I thought a great way to start off would be to let you kind of tell your story in terms of how you came to Manatee County as an employee and the path that you took to the top position. So a very unique story in the sense that you're the only person that's ever come in as an entry-level employee and worked your way all the way up to the very top spot. You're the first female county administrator, the only one we've ever had. So a lot of very unique things about uh, your career. Uh, tell us how it all kind of came about. Oh, thank you. Well, isn't Bradenton such a beautiful place? And um, back early, um, early to mid 80s, um, I'm really originally from the Midwest. So I'm from a small town in Indiana, Shelbyville. Great small town, fantastic, a lot of agriculture, but some up-and-coming business. Um, went to, um, uh, married, and uh, my husband actually got transferred to this area. So I'd never been on the west coast of Florida before. Uh, mostly been on the east coast of Florida, but I uh, came here in late 89. I knew no one. So very interesting start here. Uh, coming into an area where I was following my husband for a job that he took here. But um, I had a background in criminal justice through some work I did through Indiana University and um, also some employment in the both the public and private sector. Um, a little stint in Huntsville, Alabama for a company that did recruiting for um, the Redstone Arsenal for a lot of the... Um, Boeing, Martin Marietta, and a lot of uh, the different engineering companies there. So that was some private sector work for a couple years that I did there. And then upon arrival here, I started looking around. And actually, the interesting thing is that I had an offer for a job in Sarasota that I was supposed to start on a Monday. And I was had accepted it, and the company had called me. I was all set to go. They called me back and said, we need to delay it by a week. And the next day, Manatee County government called me and offered me a position in the community services department, working on contract management for all of our grants. And I had a background in working with the Economic Development Council and Career Source is what it's called now. It was called uh, Minnesota Industry Council back in those days. And so um, I was a, a good fit for that, and I made the decision to come on board with the county, and that was in October of 1989. We had just moved into the new downtown building, and again, um, really did not know a whole lot of people here, but as I worked through that department, um, something interesting happened about six months into my career with Manatee County. Uh, the department director came down and said there's a there's an effort to pass a children's services ordinance for a special tax for abused, abandoned, neglected, and at-risk children who are also economically disadvantaged. And we wondered if you like kids. And of <laughs> course, I said, I do love children. I didn't have any children at the time, but I actually was expecting my first child. How many kids do you have? I have two children. I have two amazing daughters. One is 30 and one is 24. 
And so um, that was my um, first foray into any kind of special uh, service or special program. And so I started working with the Children's Services um, Tax, the Children's Services Ordinance, and it passed, but it only passed by 1%. So it was just 51%. And so previously, back in 1986, Sarasota County had attempted to pass a similar tax, and it failed. So everyone here in Manatee County knew that this was really special. And um, there was a really big effort by a local organization called the Manatee Community Council for Children. And so there were a lot of child advocates here. And so I immediately learned how important youth were here, young children, early childhood development and um, started working on trying to coordinate um, that ordinance, the different things with that ordinance. And it came along with an 11-member advisory board that was appointed by the Board of County Commissioners. And so our Board of County Commissioners, I believe they had 111 applications for 11 positions on that oh, board. Wow. And so, as you can tell, it was very, very popular. Very, people were so interested in getting started. And so, that first board um, needed a liaison. I worked with them. And then um, later... What were the kind of things they were doing at, back at that time? Yeah, the, the really interesting and intriguing thing about that board was that, it, in my opinion, it was one of the first boards that had specialized representatives. So you had a member of the school board. You had a uh, physician who was a p- pediatrician. Mm-hmm. You had some child advocates. There were three child advocates positions. There was the Department of children and families position. There was a judge from the family law division. So you sort of get the idea that these were all specialists in areas where um, children were struggling and families were struggling. And so um, that made it so interesting. What a huge amount of knowledge to the, that you board. Get a, you get such different perspectives from people oh, who touch different elements of that, right? Amazing perspective. And it had a uh, uh, one-third of a millitrate that came along with it. So you started to, you know, see that you were going to have this little bit of money. And this advisory board was going to have, by ordinance, responsibility for reviewing the expenditures of that money and advising the county commission. And so that was that was a first um, really, really exciting and intriguing project that I worked on and then there was a position created for that the children's service coordinator and so I was the first one that was assigned to do that and and we built a a very very structural and organized process that worked with nonprofits and um, throughout the years um, as I said that's been since 1990 so throughout the years that program has generated upwards to about 130 million dollars in funds for um, assisting abused, neglected, abandoned, and at-risk children. And so uh, recently um, we created a very results-oriented model so that the citizens could see what what good has become of that from the standpoint of, of helping to promote early childhood. And um, teen pregnancy was a real problem back then. We worked on programs that were in the parameters of trying to help um, reduce teen pregnancy but increase education. And so that was kind of the first big foray in government. From there, I went on in that department to be the human services division manager over all of the grants, not just children's services, but adult services, um, all of the special projects. And then in 2007, there was a new department created, neighborhood services. And um, I was asked to 
establish that new department and get that new department underway. And so spent about 10 years doing that. Yeah, and that's the position you were <laughs> in when I started covering Manatee County politics. Yeah, so. okay. So that that was a very exciting position from the standpoint of really working with neighborhoods, pulling uh, people together. Uh, again, the grant side of the county came along with that, and we're really, really focused on making sure that grants are of value to the community and not just a handout or a give out. And so the board has become more of an investor as opposed to a funder. And it's also having a department like that, because I imagine how challenging it might be prior to that, having been established. That was the, I always got the sense, whereas that department was where you really came to understand what are all the different communities in the neighborhood or neighborhoods in the community and which ones are falling through the cracks, which ones aren't getting real representation. Maybe they're in a big district and they're, and they're, you know, they haven't built a relationship with the representatives or whatever the case is, but that tended to be where you saw the, the parts of the community that weren't getting their issues addressed that seemed to be how that got facilitated. Am I, am I right? Oh, definitely. And and interestingly enough, I worked on the 2000 census, the 2010 census, and now again here on the 2020 census. And when you're doing that, you are identifying neighborhoods that are either underserved or, you know, underdeveloped or where they have advocates that are really, really um, effective. And um, back in that um, mid-90s, um, the planning department with the county did several plans for neighborhoods that were in that area, and they did those plans, but a lot of those things were never implemented. Now, Bayshore Gardens is a great example where there were two plans done in Bayshore Gardens, but there was never really any implementation or follow-up, and so the Neighborhood Services Department went back and looked at all the previous action plans that had been approved by boards, and we started to look at how can we implement some of these different ideas that were really citizen-driven and involved in bringing those neighborhoods up. And so, as you indicated, that's where a lot of the work went. We did we, we really did a lot of work with federal dollars because trying to attract more resources without costing our local services more was really one of our goals. And so we, we were the first department that started working with the Community Development Block Grant and being able to identify monies that the federal government could help with various things. And so over the years, you've seen a lot of work in Bayshore. You've seen Rabonia. We've done a lot of work in Rabonia and really, really got to meet a lot of great people there. And then now, with a lot of the other things that are being done, you're seeing more affluent areas really being a part of neighborhood services as well because they want to drive additional changes. And that's really the voice. In the early years in neighborhood services, code enforcement was a part of it the nuisance abatement program. There were some other elements. And so it was really a work of trying to get a handle on what the community looks like. And, you know, you just have an amazing group of, of residents that are active in wanting to keep historically the areas that are really important to them, but then to also make improvements. Excellent. Uh, so at that point, and I guess another unique aspect of, of your time in service is the county grew at an unthinkable pace. And it's always like, I always even, you know, I've been here it's just about to be 20 years. And uh, I'm always still surprised when people give me stories about like, oh yeah, that used to be a dirt road. 
And you're like, wait, that major thoroughfare was, yeah, it was a dirt road in the 80s. And that, it's always the 80s. It's like, there were a lot of, Fruitville was a dirt road in Sarasota uh, still at some points in the 80s. And when you look at the amount of growth that has happened in this county, that is very unique. There aren't many places in the country that have had that much fast growth. But then the other thing that can happen when you do that is all of the emphasis, because then you also then have this really old historied small agricultural community in one part, like the Central Corridor, 301, 41, a little bit east of it, mostly all of it west of it. You have those old neighbors, Rabonia, like you said, that's well over 100 years old. And then it's easy for all of the, the kind of vision and focus to be on the green space that we're turning into big, beautiful new developments and houses, and then forget, hey, we've got some really old infrastructure. We've got some places that don't have a great big, you know, uh, tax base that is in need of a lot of improvement. Um, we have, I mean, still to this day, we, we, we struggle with old poorer communities that don't have enough sidewalks that don't, that, that are still have drainage ditches on the side and have drainage issues, Rabonia being one of them. Um, there's, there's really a balancing act in that, in that there's the, the, the demand for focus where a lot of the, the revenues and investment are is over here, but then there's people over yeah. here and sometimes some of the most disadvantaged people in the community getting the least amount. So it always seemed like a really great thing that we had this department that said, hey, we're, we're going to take a look at that and we're going to hear you and then we're going to represent you as, as a stakeholder yes. in this community. A lot of times when I go to describe Manatee County to people, you know, you say 734 square miles of the county, but then I say, think about from the center of town, 40 miles to the east is Duet, one-room schoolhouse. When yeah. I came here, still operating, and, and really up to just a few years ago, very unique, fully agriculture, um, you know, as you indicated, really one main road <laughs> and um, a lot of dirt roads. But um, And then when you take all the way from there out to the beaches, the beautiful beaches to the west, and still the authentic and uniqueness of our beaches is really something that to be proud of. And I think that's another thing that um, a lot of, of, of people don't understand until they visited here. And then when you look to the north, you've got the port, and how we border Hillsborough County all the way down to SRQ and the airport. So Manatee County's got such a unique set of areas because we also have, obviously, um, you know, either still the number one or close to the number one um, development community in the country with Lakewood Ranch. And when I first arrived, that was really just in the making. And so as you indicated, Back in the late 80s, early 90s, we were growing about two to 3,000. Do you remember what the population was when you started at the county? Oh, good question. Well, I can I can remember that I believe it was about 170,000. I was going to say, I, I would imagine yeah. it was under 200. So it was point. about uh, two to 3,000 a year. During so you've seen it more than double in oh, your yes. time in government. Wow. With, within the, what, what, what interested me was in the early 2000s through probably about 2012, we grew um, from about 2,000 to 3,000 resident, new residents a year to anywhere from four to 6,000. And we stayed pretty steady through that time. But in 2017, we just about hit a peak of 10,000. And we thought, oh, that's an anomaly. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen again. 18, 19, 20. And now I'm eagerly awaiting the 2020 census results because we've been estimating that we're around 411,000 
And um, we have some indications that we're, we're off and we're, we're, we're a little bit lower than what it really is. So it'll be interesting to see, but we have been averaging around 10,000 new residents a year for the last four years. We had not anticipated that. But most of that growth being out east and out in those areas where you were indicating there's not a lot of um, fully developed road connections and um, now people, schools are starting to happen in those areas. And so we, I've seen a lot of growth. Let me ask you, at any point during those days, did it ever occur to you that someday you'd be the, 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 the top the top boss? You know, it did not. Um, back when, um, in the, when I was the head of the neighborhood services department, the most intriguing thing about it was the, I had to build that department from nothing. I mean, literally, I was told, we'd like you to start this department, but you can only take the money that comes with each element that you're getting that's mm -hmm. already in the budget and each person. And so we literally pieced that together like a little puzzle with no intentions, obviously, of making it a huge department. But as the community kept growing, you know, we knew that we had to keep moving things together. And so I think the interesting thing was is I had uh, that ability and skill to know exactly how to build, you know, something from the ground up. And it ended up really um, when, I, when I then became the deputy county administrator in 2017, uh, we had about a $44 million budget in the department. And so we were looking at all of the different elements and um, just knowing how the county operates. I mean, I'll tell you, when I look back, I've worked for 31 different county commissioners as of, you know, within the last oh, wow. month or two. So 31 different ones. Um, I've been activated over 23 times for emergencies um, I've uh, worked either either for or as now a county administrator for seven different county administrators. So from that, you gain a tremendous amount of different knowledge. And also with all those years, you have, you have ups and you have downs. And I experienced the downturn. And just to give you an example of that, in 2011, I'll never forget having to go to a community redevelopment area board meeting with citizens to tell them um, in our South County CRA, we had a budget of revenue coming in up to that point of about $1.9 million a year. And I had to say to them, the estimate we have for next year is 40000 And to see the look on everyone's face, that's how quickly something can change. And you have to be able to then understand, uh, you know, what, where the money's coming from, what, what color money is, what, what can you use it for? How do you adjust to that? And so I think the experience that I brought to the table as a deputy, and then later as the county administrator was, I've basically been through every challenge up through the pandemic. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, because that's one of the things, again, like when you do something as simple as a survey of what do you think the county administrator should have? Um, the thing that makes that such a silly exercise, in my opinion, is that I think if you polled people and said, hey, what do you think the county administrator does? I think you'd have under 1% of the people that can give something even approaching a relevant answer to that. <laughs> it is having, you know, covered it for a long time. It is a extremely unique job demanding or requiring an extremely unique skill set, in my opinion. And 
you have like this thing where there is like, even if you're a CEO of a fortune 500 company, you haven't touched something that encompasses such a broad array of services. So, and, and, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, thinking of something from, you know, garbage disposal to clean water, to traffic, to public safety, to, you know, emergency management in a hurricane or, hey, a once in every hundred year pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, it's just enormous. And I'm sure there's a, you know, endless list of things I'm missing there. Uh, can you, in, in as much of a, you know, nutshell as you can, can you kind of describe a little bit about what a county administrator is and what they do? Yes, yes, I can. And and as he indicated, some experience that comes along with that is is knowing how government operations um, are are supposed to happen and what we're required to do. And so something to always keep in mind when you're talking about the county administrator's role and the board for that matter is that you're responsible for the health, welfare, and safety of the citizens. That's a very broad term. And as you indicated. Um, there are a lot of responsibilities. So uh, uh, the, probably the things that people most hear is the county administrators required for bringing forward an annual budget to the board, a balanced budget. Uh, that is, um, is a big job. Uh, we do it in Manatee County. We've done it every two years as a larger budget. And so you spend... You spend a good fair amount, probably more than six months of the time, really digging into the programs, the services, the departments, projecting what the revenues are going to be, anticipating various legislative changes. But you're in responsible for making sure you bring that forward. And probably something else that people don't understand is that means you're bringing forward the constitutional officer's budget as mm -hmm. well. So that's the sheriff, the clerk, the public defender, you know, the supervisor of elections and so on. And so, you know, relationship building with the county administrator's office is really important, but trust is really important from the standpoint of making sure that you're understanding what the trends are. And so if the sheriff is asking for, say, 25 more deputies, which comes along with vehicles and equipment and all of those costs, you, you want to know what the trends are, what's, what's mm -hmm. bringing that request forward. And so the county administrator's job is to really analyze and look at what's happening across the community. Um, 12 departments, as you mentioned, very diverse departments from, um, you know, your, your waste and your solid waste, your water quality, leading right up, on, uh, up to um, our economic development side where we're working with business. We have eight out of the 12 departments are basically the public service facing the departments. And then probably then the remaining four are more internal departments like financial management, human resources, information services and then there's an interesting one property management which is the facilities manager for all of county owned properties and that's probably something a lot of people don't know is the responsibility of the county administrator which is you're managing all of the public facilities so that's just not a park or the county administration building but that's making sure that the judicial center the historic courthouse all of the sheriff's offices, facilities, that those are all managed and operated and taking into consideration any kind of upgrades or maintenance that needs to be done there. And so that's a big job along with 
with parks maintenance and um, energy efficiency, which is a new area that we've really delved into to try to, to save taxpayers funding. But those kinds of services happen. And so while you're doing the budget, you're making sure that your information technology, that all of the, the staff, there are 1,900 employees that are under the county administrator with those 12 departments, and you're actually just operating all of those functions. And um, then you're taking direction from the Board of County Commissioners. So any kind of directive or policy decision that the Board of County Commissioners decides on, and those meetings happen about every two weeks. You also have your land use meeting that happens once or twice a month. And so each time there's a directive there, you're bringing that forward or carrying it forward dependent upon what the board votes on. And then the other biggie for the county administrator is your capital improvement plan. And that's in the statute. There's a five-year capital improvement plan and you're responsible for managing that plan. And in Manatee County right now, there's 504 projects in the current capital improvement plan. It is over five years. They're all at varying stages. And that touches, give us like some just rough examples of what, what kind. I can think of a couple brand new ones. Let me talk about the 60th Avenue project out near the outlet mall where the Florida Department of Transportation is going to soon be realign, realigning that interchange there. And they're making a lot of moves there. So it takes many years of working with them on um, right-of-way purchase and timing about uh, making improvements to that intersection for 60th Avenue and the growth out in the northern part of the county, which goes past the outlet mall and then on through one of the new area developments, Travesta. And so you're doing a study to look at all the property. You're buying right-of-way. You're doing a design for expanding the roadway. And you're looking for alternatives for traffic movement. That's one big project. Obviously, everyone's well aware of the 44th Avenue project that's been underway for so many years it's about right now in the $140 million range, and we are in the process of going across the Manatee River, which is a big, big element, and then planning for future to go across Interstate 75. So you have a lot of projects that are big in the capital improvement plan that span anywhere from 5 to 15 years. Um, there are there are smaller projects that people are really looking at. There are road and, or excuse me, bridge improvements we've got one going on right now that's also a utility improvement on upper manatee road and you know there's so much traffic we really have to plan around but those are key elements and then on the public safety side we are also um, be, with that growth you and i talked about earlier of of population you're looking for other areas for emergency operations so ems stations and places where citizens can receive services in a more um, productive way, less time between um, rolling out of wherever that uh, element is located at and getting to the citizen to fix their problem. And you're also, so you, your job differs in my understanding of it in two really big ways from most people's in that one, then outside of your realm, there is what we call the political environment because everything requires votes. And then there are all these competing interests or just a politically political viability, if you will, of certain things. Like, for example, you know, we're in a conservative community and uh, there is a 
fierce resistance to anything that suggests we've raised someone's taxes. So if there is, and that becomes a challenge, especially in growth-driven communities, because every credible study that's ever been shown demonstrates that it costs about $1.25 in services for every new dollar that growth contributes to government. So you're stuck in this sort of, you know, trying to plug the holes in that if you grow at that phenomenal rate that we described earlier, and people are coming in by the tens of thousands every year, and now all of a sudden, what used to be a rural hamlet out in Parrish or Ellington area is now stacked with homes. That means that sheriff calls are running out there over longer distances from, from their hubs. That means that the EMS workers are going over longer distances. And as they become more developed, guess what? There's more red lights between here and there than there used to be. And what might've been a 13 minute ride is a 21 minute ride. So then it becomes, hey, can we build another substation out there? Can we get another EMS truck? And then sometimes the answer so often is not without raising taxes. And then people are like, well, government takes too much already. Um, that is, is, is a big part of it. You have the political element. And then you also have this dynamic where you have the, well, it feeds into it, which is the public perception. And I, my biggest empathy to people who work in public administration these days is how incredibly successful this war on government has been. What I mean by the war on government is something that started, I trace it really back to 1980 and Ronald Reagan saying, you know, the scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government, I'm here to help and we need to make it smaller. And then it continued, it's bipartisan. Clinton said, you know, the era of big government is over. We're making it leaner and smaller. And this, this sort of myth, in my opinion, that the government's the bad guy and whenever you have more of it, you're gonna be worse off. That has taken such root to the point where I'm genuinely curious as someone who was at the top of it and spent your whole life in it, how much did that change over your career and how stark was it up until the very end in terms of what people thought of government? Yeah, well, I can tell you that um, it, what we do is we do a very thorough job of trusted sources. And so in government, you see lots of comparisons. So you see, we'll be looking for a community that has similar size, similar issues, uh, similar, similar environmental issues, um, uh, different kinds of things that relate to us. And we'll do a lot of comparisons. And Manatee County has always been a very conservative type um, community, given that we really look at things in that light. And so um, I've seen with the growth of population that need for people want things. You know, when you've got people coming from the Northeast, you've got them coming from um, the Midwest, and they're expecting to have the types of things that they had there. And, you know, one of the, one of the uh, sort of uh, exciting things about being in this area, but is also sort of a curse, is that the weather's beautiful all the time, <laughs> pretty much all the time. So there's never really a down period down here um, in Florida. And so when you're when you're from somewhere else and it's cold and dreary and That's wintery, when you're doing the maintenance yeah. of the building, right? <laughs> and you're staying inside and you're staying home. And so not down here. You know, down here you're out and about and you're enjoying this in beautiful weather and 
gathering with people and doing all sorts of things. And so I've seen that change in the sense that um, there's more demands, and they definitely are coming from the citizenry. They, they expect to have the types of things that they've had in other places. And so there's a balance with that. And we, we do a lot of comprehensive planning review. We look at level of service and, you know, just exactly how much it costs per citizen to do various things. And um, Manatee County and its Board of County Commissioners have done a good job of that. They have gone through and really looked at that and said, you know, let's be let's be sure before we're really, you know, increasing things. But just recently in the past few years, I can tell you that there has been a demand on law enforcement and code enforcement. Mm-hmm. And that is, people should really be thinking that that is a logical demand because of the growth in the population. And so quickly, if it were something that were gradual, if you were just adding a thousand people a year for a 10 or 20 year period, you wouldn't notice it as much as having a doubling or a tripling in size of new people in one or two years. And so in those areas where people really want to be made to feel safe and secure and supportive, you can see that those de- particular departments' responses in emergency management. We've got an 11-minute response in Manatee County for emergency management for an ambulance to get to person. That that's that's a good response. But the farther out we go with development, that could be impeded. And so you can see that sort of struggle between. And an extra minute is a long oh, time if you're not breathing, right? Definitely. And and even with the location of your hospitals, there you know there mm-hmm. are three, and um, you've got to make sure that that ambulance can get right. to the hospital. And so those are sort of the really key things from a county government side that an administrator is really focused on, those life safety issues, but then the rest of the quality of life is what people enjoy every day. And so we, we always really, really look hard at the level of service requirements, and we do. Like I said, we do comparisons of other counties, and, and we have done a good job of managing that and so proud of the departments. You have professionals in each one of those 12 departments that are highly educated for that subject and topic matter and they have been able to always provide trusted information so that the board the commissioners who make the ultimate decision and remember um, for people listening there's only two positions that the board of county commissioners actually hire that's the county administrator and the county attorney and the county um, commission make all of the decisions they make all of the votes The county administrator has no vote. The county attorney doesn't either. But we bring forward the data and the information to help inform your commissioners so that they can make an informed decision when they are setting policy and giving directives. And also very important for people to understand, individual commissioners have essentially zero power outside of what they legislate through a majority vote. True. And then here in Manatee County, which again, for listeners, is not the same in all counties or cities and across the country, we have seven commissioners, five that are district commissioners, so they have a special district boundary, and then two at-large commissioners. Now, the interesting thing about that was when I started with the county, there were only five. Correct, yeah. And so there was seen to be a need to have more of an overview of the full county need and not just having a battle between districts and so those two at-large commission seats were made and so Manatee County is unique in that way that we have that set up but it allows the two at-large commissioners to really look at district 
needs when a district commissioner brings it forward and then they can help sort of balance the rest of the discussion and so that makes a little bit of a unique area but you're right it's a majority of the board and that that really behind the scenes is what happens as well is when you have topics that you're discussing with the board and you're you're moving on their directives you're you're collectively and individually talking to commissioners about where you're at with a project and then you're gauging whether hey we need to take the next step or we need to bring this back to the board we need to um, get a vote we need to put this project away it's not working and so that's those are some of the things that the county administrator has to be able to be neutral about all different decisions and be able to know when you have what type of information that needs to come to the board and and the timing in which to do it. Now, one of the things that your administration was integral on that you inherited, so it started with your predecessor, and I'm talking about the East County Operations Center, and you took it over and the board voted on direction for what they wanted to do with it. And then your job, the only thing you could do as a county administrator is to enact the will of the board. Um, so we have this growing county, we have this need and demand for services, and it's identified that, hey, all of the growth seems to be happening way out here. And as that density increases from where most of our operations exist and those places, it takes longer and longer and longer to get out there. And we're losing more and more and more efficiency as a result. So we're going to have to have hubs in those areas. Anybody that does any kind of long-term planning is going to see that. You can't have the vast amount of your you know, uh, infrastructure needs occurring in one place and then having all of your operations somewhere else. So there was foresight identified in saying, hey, that's only going to become harder to do as more of the county gets built out because there's going to be less available land. It's going to be very specific footprints that we're going to need. This We're probably a little bit behind the game, if anything, because the growth has happened way faster than anybody's anticipated it. You know, we, we, we obviously have entitlements of landowners, but you never know from, from one phase to the next how quickly that's going to happen. And I don't think anyone thought that let's say the aughts, you know, 2000, whatever to 2020 would see as much growth as it saw. Um, so that happens. And then you have to, you have to respond with things that take a long time to do in a relatively short period of time. And you, you, with the you know, votes of the board, you shepherded through this land deal that allowed the county to do that. And not a word was said about it for so long. And then surprisingly, in, in late 2020, it becomes this giant issue. And there's an election going on, and there's candidates talking about it. And if anything, and I've said this to people before, I've covered so much government corruption in my career that I always have to be careful because my inherent bias is, if I have a confirmation bias in that department, it's to believe that it's happening. And I'm, I'm, if anything, I have to say, okay, it might not be, let's take a deeper look at this. So as soon as I started seeing some energy around this, I was very interested in taking a look and seeing what I found. And I was very surprised to find that I really couldn't find anything I didn't like about this plan. It looked very on the up and up. Uh, Joe McClash, our publisher, who's 22 year, you know, longest continually serving county commissioner in Manatee history, uh, and someone who made his reputation on understanding things like infrastructure, 
sent it, all my, my notes to him and said, hey, man, am I missing something here? And he goes, no, this actually looks like a really good idea. It looks like it's it's all in the up and up. And let's be honest, Mr. McClash was not a big fan of your predecessor. So if he had a bias, it may have been to say, you know, hey, I don't think Ed did a great job on, on identifying this. Uh, but we both didn't see any there there. And as we went through that, it didn't take me that long to see, ah, I see what's going on here. This is being politicized. And I was the first person to say, and, and even Joe said, I think you're reaching here. Um, but I said, I think this is going to be used against Sherry. And he goes, well, that's not possible. I said, anything's possible. Don't tell somebody who's done this, this job for a while. Um, and he said, but I mean, Sherry's a county administrator. All she does is carry out the will of the board. And I said, yes, but this is going to be an albatross. And this is going to be hung around her neck and they're just going to chant it loud enough. And she's going to be blamed for, for this being something that I don't even know how it's going to be presented as being bad. Um, can you walk us through that experience a little bit in terms of what you were looking to do, what you feel you accomplished, and maybe any disconnect with how it was presented after? Yeah, I can walk you through. Um, you know, I, I really, this particular project was not, it's not unlike any other big project. I mean, I mentioned uh, 60th Avenue, 44th, you know, um, you, you start planning things well in advance. But in this instance, um, we had a lot of different factors. I think you, you know, earlier in the program here, I mentioned we have a five-year capital improvement plan. And so one of the things that transpired in 2016 was the passing of an infrastructure sales tax. And so, again, for citizens, you have a passing of an infrastructure sales tax, which was supported, and that means you know, more government involvement with expanding services, creating more um, in new projects for roads and various things. And so when we started really looking at what the impacts to from the infrastructure sales tax were and where the population was growing, because we're looking at all of the, the land development applications coming in and where the possibility for growth is. And, and as we mentioned, the population growing, all of a sudden we started saying, well, we're going to have impacts to our capital improvement plan for EMS stations. We had the sheriff's office who we have has been begging the county for a new fleet facility for at least the last 10 years. You had um, public works and utilities that, you know, just as an example on the public works side, they're on the 26th street project there. And um, to get anywhere from that particular area, they have to go, um, at least past all of the um, city, you know, traffic. You've got our utilities department that's that's housed out on 66th Street. And when we we looked at really timing for what all happened when you left that 66th Street area, you could be anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half before you got to any citizen to to respond to customer concerns mm -hmm. or to actually work on a project um, out east. And so. There was, there was a great deal of emphasis put on looking at the research. And, and that time will never get shorter. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is true. It's not a temporary problem, right? Well, and, you know, um, it's just also wear and tear on vehicles, mm -hmm. gas mileage, you know, sitting in traffic. You don't want big pieces of equipment sitting around with, you know, in the middle of town trying to get from one place to another and, and having to spend, you know, two hours on the road uh, without productivity. And so as we started to look at this um, in the last 
three to four years, it just started building that there were more and more needs because of this growth in population. And so uh, we first started off looking for properties for the fleet facility, and we identified anywhere from the first year was about five to six properties, but then we were all the way up to 23 properties. And when we did that, the cost for just a mere five-acre parcel was astronomical. We didn't even have that in the capital improvement Mm -hmm. plan. And so as we started looking to where this growth was going and an opportunity to um, provide better customer service and lessen the cost over time on maintenance and mileage and response times, we started noticing that we needed to be somewhere just east of I-75. And so... um, we, we, did a, we did an analysis of, of those 23 to 25 different parcels, and um, after you looked at whether they were near residential, were they near thoroughfares, what types of, of zoning they had, um, we, we really all of a sudden identified that we, we have this huge landfill. We have this issue about a new landfill. We're in the same process of that time frame. We're looking for a new landfill site, and what we determined was we had another element that could have been a good factor, which was just uh, on on property adjacent to the landfill right now, we have the ability to build a transfer station. And so when you added up all the acreage needed to do those four or five things, it became apparent that a larger parcel, if we could identify one, would be um, you know the best opportunity because you want a lifespan of anywhere from 75 to 125 years on something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you're looking at what boards have to decide and future boards have to make decisions on, you're spending less time doing individual projects in your capital improvement plan where you're looking for a five-acre parcel instead of, you know, looking at we have this property. And, and I think the biggest driving factor from staff as we brought this forward to the board was we also went through Hurricane Irma back in 2017, and we were already researching parcels at that time. And if you remember, the debris that was created by that particular emergency created, you know, a really big burden on the community of, um, there was not much property damage, but there was debris. And, you know, we really looked at the road system and the grid. And then the other key thing was that, um, the Fort Hamer Bridge was built and open and created that new passageway from the um, from the south to the north, and we didn't have any facilities out in that area that could reach those citizens. And so that's how we um, kept going back to the board and briefing them and um, thumbs up on moving forward. And basically, that's how we were able to land on the location that was um, primarily the final decision and directive from our Board of County Commissioners. And so you have the opportunity now and and well, the money part too. Could you explain real quick the part about money's coming out of utilities? Because that's, I think, yes. a part that's missed because it's it's very easy for people to just imagine the government has a big checkbook and everything they buy comes from the same account like yours um, at home. But the reality is anything but that. And and that's one of the immensely complicated things about public administration is that you're paying things from a million different buckets that all have really, really, you know, uh, tight restrictions on how they can be spent and very little leeway in, in where they can be moved to. So 
Yes. Uh, what was the funding for that project? Yeah, so the funding for the project that we're discussing, um, the actual cost for the land um, was around $30 million. Now, out of that $30 million, just over $15 million was from your utility system. And that primarily, as I was just indicating, is to allow a transfer station to be built adjacent to the, adjacent to the landfill. Now, that alone portion of the project created a very interesting savings for the future, which is by, by building a, a transfer station in that location, we added another six years of life onto our current landfill, but a cost savings of over an estimate of over $75 million. And so that alone... Um, Explain w- that cost savings. Yeah, that cost savings is um, currently based on rates that citizens are paying now. Um, The fact that any type of new landfill most likely is going to be much farther out. It's not going to be in the area that it is now. It's probably going to be farther out east. It's going to be north. It's going to be a considerable drive. It's going to increase the price and cost of getting the materials to a new location. And then... Um, What a lot of citizens probably don't realize is that we have an obligation to any landfill, even when it's closed. Long past it. Yes. So once we do close a landfill site, we, uh, you know, for 50 years, we'll be managing that landfill site to make sure that it was proper, it's being properly handled, that the buffers. Not having illegal dumping on it. Correct. And so with staff already located in that area, we also saw that as a savings to not have to have a completely new site. with its total operations. So when you add all that up, estimated about a $75 million savings. And, you know, really, when you think about it, too, um, you you know, you want to be cautious about what you put near an old landfill. You don't want residential, Mm -hmm. you know, housing, you know, uh, adjacent to something like that. It's just not environmentally you know, successful for people to live in those areas. And so all of those factors were there. And then I think another key factor that is really important is that with this large growth of people, 88,000 customers would have an, have a, uh, would see an, a less amount of time going from anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half of response time down to 15 to 20 minutes. And that's 88,000 people that are going to see a service reduction response time immensely important for them. And then another 20,000 just in today's projected standards that would have a 30-minute response time. And those, as you can imagine, are people that live extremely far out east. And um, as development continues to grow, you're going to see, obviously, more people, you know, sprawling out into those Mm -hmm. areas. And so when you put all of those things together and you put the fact that, um, you know, you're trying to help traffic by reducing the truck volume in in town, um, it looked like those were, that was pointed in the right direction for that particular location. And I mentioned 44th Avenue earlier and you have state road 64 and so you're close to thoroughfares that are in that area that are um, excessively used for points of getting to and from different areas now when people made the counter argument and said the vast majority of that savings is from something like 20 acres adjacent to a landfill why didn't we just buy that at a much lower price. Well, as you know, we've we've been in the business of purchasing property um, since um, county government started, and so you can see just by this merely by this growth 
that's happening, all of the parcels are being, you know, purchased. And so as each different level of parcel that we looked at that had large amounts of acreage there started to be be purchased and at, it's going to be higher rates, it seemed like uh, an economical way to do it. When we did comparisons of surrounding parcel um, sales over the last three to five years, uh, $187,000 per acre seemed to be well within um, the ability to be able to use that property for future uh, needs as they come along. And, and also, again, access for our utilities, public works, and emergency management and sheriff are, are four of the main needs every citizen has. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and one of the other, I guess, arguments that I think answers itself is when people said, well, you're not even going to build some of the stuff now. And you look at it and you say, and this is particularly interesting because I've heard one per- commissioner in particular who vote, who was outraged by it, that make the arguments on other issues that it's never going to be as cheap as you do it now. And interest rates are so incredibly low. If we bond something out now, it, you're saving on what you're buying it for later that seems to make its own case in terms of why you would, you would access that land. And then some of that was also developable. So if you don't buy it, now you do have houses being built closer to your landfill. And that creates problems. We saw Sarasota County close a landfill before it needed to be just to evade one of those problems. And imagine, if you're listening, how many places are eager to have a new landfill open next to them? That's not exact. I, I imagine that's one. That's like a dentist appointment in government. That's like one of those things you're not looking forward to do because there's not a lot of like good options when it's like, hey, we want to build a brand new landfill and uh, bring it into some neighborhood. Where's one where there's nobody around that's going to mind that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> now, when I... One of the things that I did in reporting this story was at a certain point I said, uh, I contacted you and I said, hey, you know, I'd like to do a deeper dive into the landfill and I don't want to get surprised by anything. So I'd really like to interview as many people as possible that were involved so that I could really drill down because I'm looking at it and still seeing there's a lot of public outrage. Let's really make sure I'm not missing something. And I spent about two and a half hours and you were there, but uh, Mike Gore was there, Joy Leggett was there, John Osborne was there, and they gave me, and what was really impressive was they were all eager to be grilled on it. And they were basically like, uh, Jill in particular was like, hit us with anything you want. Like, we want to defend this, and we, we, we want you to ask the hard questions because we're eager to, to answer them and tell you, hey, this is why we think this was a great idea. And I walked away... And, you know, had a phone call with Joe later that day. And he's like, hey, how'd it go? And I said, boy, I've never been as comfortable that this is a good deal. And I said, to be honest with you, I really think you could have paid considerably more and still justified the cost when you look at the other options. And you look at the cost of buying it at future prices, parcel by parcel, piecemeal, for all these different buildings that we're going to need, and then trying to imagine where you might be able to find those five and 10 and 15 acres here and there, um, I think we saved far more money in the long term. And then there's all these ancillary benefits that come with having them in-house close to each other, surrounding that landfill that you're going to have those obligations for a half century after it closes with other government properties. 
and not having the development that might butt up against this stuff, I couldn't find anything that made me like it less. But what was really telling was when at the end, a couple of the employees said, you know, I really wish the county commissioners would have asked for this. And I thought, wow, that is telling that these people that, that wanted to publicly drag this over the coals didn't take as much time as I did in just two hours to learn as much as you could about why you might be wrong. And then in interviews with those commissioners, how rare, well, I'll, I'll just say it, none of them debated me. In, in terms of, they, they all evaded the questions and said, well, you know, it's over now. Glad you like it because we own it. And, you, you know, I just, I don't know, you know, I just think we could have got it for less with some of the answers. Nobody gave a full-throated defense of this is a horrible thing that the taxpayers have been screwed over royally on and somebody's head needs to hit the floor over. Uh, what, what's your, you know, if you could say it, what, what's your final feeling on that project and the way that played out and kind of how it got got how it got consumed in the public versus how it actually happened well i think that um it that project is uh similar to other big projects and of course you know saying i've been around the county for 30 years we've seen a lot of big projects but you know, just to give some examples, um, you know, you've got uh, Port Manatee, big project out there um, in, in, in development. It'll take, you know, it'll take 100 years for, for it to really grow out. And so you do question yourself. You question yourself over the years. Did we make the right move here? Um, you know, is the timing economically right? Um, we used all of our trusted sources, all of our processes that we bring forward. And again, um, you know, there's there'll be some speculation as to whether or not that that's a useful parcel for those things that we brought up. But I will say this is that um, we immediately wanted to make sure that we were as transparent as possible. And so we, we have all of the documentation every step of the way. Um, we have the ability for, you know, current board members or future board members to, to learn and understand, you know, everything they can about that particular purchase. And obviously, the, the, the documentation speaks for itself. Now, the, the issue for them will be um, what's coming next? What kind of requests will come next? You know, as population grows, we anticipated population continuing. But I have to be honest with you, um, you know, a year's worth of a pandemic certainly um, changes things and puts a different perspective on, you know, what people think is important or what they need in the future. So I think some of that hasn't played out yet, but there's certainly nothing hidden about this project. This project is going to be there for years to come for any board member to be able to see every single, you know, document, sheet of paper, number, um, the environmentals that were done, this, the, the appraisals that were done. And so, you know, I, I think that it'll play out as, as, as it comes through from what is really needed to help, again, those things that I mentioned, the health safety and welfare of the community and if that parcel can have those impacts on what the future board wants to decide then the good news is is they have something there if they find a need in another area they've got those same qualified types of staff that you mentioned that can go out and do that research and come back with options for them like we did in this particular project and it'll be up to whichever board is seated then to make that decision 
Now, I've reported, you know, over the course of the last year, uh, and even going back to when you first got hired, and the it was very well known that the developer special interest in this community did not want you to be the county administrator. They had their own person. Uh, I've reported that I had several sources involved that that had told me they were pressured to go a different direction, um, and it was seen as <laughs> no. Um, Listen, and again, I've reported this many times. Anyone who thinks that developers have it hard in Manatee County, it is a build-friendly environment. It is an easy place to be a developer, and all you have to do is look at the profit line on the ledger for the developers who work here. And, and they're not running away looking for other places to develop. They are developing like gangbusters for a reason. And But there was a thought from some people on the board that, well, you can't really have this because it's an important position and they do a whole lot more than run the building and development you know, department. And you know things like hurricanes, things like pandemics, things like public safety. And we can't really have somebody there that, that's not the best possible candidate. Um, I started to see this then, I, I, I think before everybody else that, oh, this is what this is. This is a way that we're going to generate some faux public outrage to give us cover for coming after a good, loyal, you know, uh, public servant and and hanging an albatross around their neck and saying they've got to go and putting our own people in. Um, and then we saw that unfold right after the elections. And we saw a very obvious concentrated effort to have you removed for political purposes, to have you replaced with somebody more to the liking of, of special interests. And you immediately went under attack. You know, we reported the, the issue with the, uh, you know, being asked for your resignation, you know, the, the day after the, the, the swearing in ceremony. Um, what is your sense of, what needs to be, or let me put it this way. This might be the easiest way to phrase it for you to answer in a way that could be open and honest. What is the ideal relationship between the elected officials on a county commission and the county administrator who, who oversees an enterprise of 1,900 employees? The, the county administrator, as we talked before, is one of those two positions they hire and fire. And so when you take on a position like this, you're well aware that um, you have a different relationship. And especially in my instance of working with the county for, for you know, 28 years before, you know, taking on the county administrator's role, you know, I definitely knew there's a different kind of a relationship there. I'd say that each commissioner, I always consider them as each being unique in their own right. Because as we talk, they have districts that they're in charge of. It's all made up of different types of people. Some of the district uh, commissioners represent new, newer areas. Some are, are older, historical. Some are more economically pushing with business. Others are, you know, agriculture and some other areas. So it's important as the county administrator that you get to know the constituency in those areas and what the different factors drive. And so from, from my perspective as coming on board, I was lucky to have that history with the community. Neighborhood services really was a help to me to know what you're really dealing with. Because also in neighborhood services was the economic development program. And we really, as a county, didn't have 
a robust economic development program until around 2008. And that that came about working within the department and trying to do an element of county government as more driven towards business friendly. And so um, we were able to make some positive changes there for incentives. But I think what 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 is the most key important role that you have with the commissioners is that you're in touch with them, you're aware of what kinds of things are on their plate, what they're up against. Um, you know, there's a lot of a learning curve for any commissioner when they're coming on the board, either new or whether there are changes from the legislative side. When changes are being driven from the legislature down to the counties, um, sometimes I think the commissioners are challenged by that because they know what their community, they know what they need, they know what they'd like to see happen. And so it's a real steady mix between being able to implement statute requirements directives from the board and recommending to the board what kinds of services you think you need to have in order to meet the demands by the citizens. And so that relationship with commissioners and the policy-driven role that they have uh, is, is really created on a one-on-one basis. There's, there's also this idea of, you know, running a public government more like a business. And as someone, you know, I, I've worked at high levels in the private sector. My degree is in, you know, public policy and, and economics. Um, I am of the opinion that, and, and, you know, I was a captain in the army, so I've worked in the public sector to that degree. I'm of the opinion that they couldn't be more different. That, and, and, they, and that that's a good thing. And it's a good thing to the extent that people who actually run big businesses and corporations seem to understand that very well. So you, you the person saying, Government should be run like a like, like a business is usually someone that doesn't have much experience in business. So let me ask it this way: Did you have the and there, there's currently nobody on the board who's who's run a large company uh, or or had really much experience in a large company? There's certainly nobody on the board that has had a opportunity to oversee an enterprise anywhere near to the size that that you have, um, but you do deal with large companies in our community, big business stakeholders. Are most of them asking, hey, get out of the way, get small, and and we'll handle everything? Or are they asking you, hey, we want partners in government to support a business community, to build the infrastructure that drives business, and to create the sort of uh, uh, confidence in government that draws investment and that that helps people see yes that's that's a place that's run right and that has vision and that has supportive infrastructure and i can you know promise our shareholders that that yes going there for the next 30 to 40 years is is a good idea what's your sense of it having been the person that's actually out talking to businesses about what they need well i think that there's an, a common term that that equates both in the private and public sector and that's time is money and so any kind of project that we would be working on whether it's bringing um, a new a new road on board, whether it's it's replacing a utility system, whether it's creating a zoning area so that that uh, more business friendly time frames can be done, it, it, it equates back to that time is money. And I think both business relationships that the county has and customer citizen relationships want 
you to be able to most efficiently manage your organization. They know that there are things that the private sector does not want to do, nor would they do well because it would be driven just merely by the cost. And so the county has certain responsibilities to all citizens. We have um, we have an, a very um, dynamic group of citizens from your very affluent down to socioeconomic areas that struggle. And that's not uncommon to communities. But in the county government world, you have to take all of those people into consideration and try to meet somewhere in the middle. And with business, you have the ability to make decisions based on the bottom line. We can't do that in in county government. We, we've got... Um, individuals that you know that where things aren't equal and so I think the biggest driver for me over the years and and I'm I'm a, a positive person I'm driving for results I like to see things happen quickly but but effectively and appropriate is that we've done the re- required review of what needs to be done we've looked at the cost there are a lot of stipulations under the public sector for procuring things we have a procurement code that we have to follow, and that's for, for equal fairness for, for businesses and to make sure that the citizens are getting the type of, of a quality product that they're looking for. And so that adds some extra time. And when you have such a demand on your growth, people would tend to say you're slowing down, you're not doing things in a proper manner. And so I think from a county administrator standpoint, you're, you're balancing and juggling that. And then this past year, I'd say, from some from some of the keys that were really important was that we have a lot of projects that are on the table that are early in design and a lot of that had to do with the fact that companies private sector companies weren't out there enough to absorb the work and turn it around in time because with um, in this case in this past year with the pandemic we lost some businesses they that we would have normally had opportunity to have have public sector work and so you're constantly reviewing the amount of time that a project is being developed we do a business case scenario on every project that comes forward to our budget and a lot of people might not know that 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 was something that we transitioned to about six years ago and so when something doesn't make sense from a business perspective doing a business case it doesn't pass the test. It doesn't make it to the board for a consideration of being in the budget. We have to balance out all, you know, the why and who's going to get the service, what it's costing, where that, like you were saying earlier, what money can that come from? And so when we do these business case scenarios, that's a lot like what the public, or excuse me, what the private sector would do. But ultimately, you know, I think I was I would say one of the hardest responsibilities of the county administrator is that your decision is the last one. When the board gives you a directive and tells you to move forward, you know, you're making these these decisions based on all of the data that you have. That business case, did it make sense? Are you know, there's a let's say there's a six percent increase or an eight percent increase in your um, product cost that you hadn't planned on. You you focused on three or five percent. You really have to go back and study all of those things. And so um, I see elements of county government throughout my career that 
there is a business focus towards being able to make improvements, time, efficiency, making sure the cost is in line. But then I also see areas where it's very difficult to do that when you're serving citizens that are in a community that don't have the ability to, um, you know, to have the same types of amenities that, you know, are in others. Yeah, you've got the... You know, when you look at something, I, I always use trash collection because I think it's a really easy one. And you say, you look at the service that you get for the price you pay for at Manatee County. It, look at your bill, people. It is phenomenal. And I can tell you, you know, I grew up in the Northeast and my parents are still in a town where it's privatized and you have your choice between three different places. And guess what you end up doing? You end up switching from all the three because they all suck. And you just say, I can't send this one anymore. I'm going to take this one. I'm going to take that one. And... Then, so you're going to the, the the bidders. And then the other problem though with it is, is if somebody can't afford to pay their bill, then it just doesn't get collected. And guess what? Trash isn't this thing that just affects you because if you live on a block where three houses aren't getting their trash collected, those rats and mice and, every, and raccoons that show up, they don't respect property boundaries. They're coming into your garage, your house, everything else. It becomes a mess and people are immediately calling who? Who are they calling? They're not calling the garbage company. They're calling the government and saying, do something about this house next to me. They're calling code enforcement. They, they want answers. They want results because the market doesn't always have a solution for everything. We saw that in Texas recently. Hey, we're going to deregulate uh, uh, heat. And, you know, the good news is that if you don't need it, it's going to be super, super cheap. But uh, we're not really prepared for like a one in every 100-year cold snap. So these fluctuating prices, you know, you had people that had an $18,000 bill for one month. And it was like, oh, yeah, that can happen sometimes. And then those people weren't happy. But again, those are market-based solutions. If everything's just based on the supply and demand. And one thing that I had really hoped the, the COVID experience would teach us is an appreciation for the idea that government isn't this evil thing that we fight back all the time. It is essentially, when it comes down to it, it's the way we take care of ourselves. As a community, it's the way that we say, hey, there are certain things that we can't just rely on some guy who has a business that solves that and you call him. Uh, There are certain things that everybody kind of needs all the time or doesn't need until they absolutely need it right now. And the only way that there can be an efficient model for having those resources available when they need to be deployed is for us all to give a little bit all the time and then someone to manage that and say, hey, you know, might not be no market for a hurricane this this year, but if there is, there's people waiting for that. There's resources ready to deploy for that. It's kind of an insurance type model on, on many things. And then other things like the garbage, like your water, that's another one. When you look at, go look what it costs for a bottle of water in the store and then Imagine what the water quality, which I live in unincorporated Manatee County. We're in Bradenton right now. I won't drink the water from this tap. I will drink the tap at home. I'll, I'll say that with no problem. I'll tell you another thing. City of Bradenton, I hope you're listening. We have to call twice a month at least for days that our garbage wasn't picked up. I've lived in Manatee County for a very long time. I've never called once over, over garbage pickup. So this level of service that we get, and unfortunately, and this is my empathy for, for people in government, is you don't really realize too often, too often you don't realize until it doesn't happen. It's not until you're angry because some, the one time your trash didn't get picked up, then, then that person's calling the person in government wanting to cuss them out and tell them how horrible they are. Um, but you don't realize the vast majority of what those people are doing on a day-to-day basis. 
Absolutely, and those are great examples. Um, I think it's it's akin to you don't if you don't have to make a call ever, you don't know what you're missing. You know what you're really getting. What what the main thing is. But think about think about that unfortunate one time you need an ambulance and you have to call nine one one. You know they pick up immediately. Now mm-hmm. now in in some places it's dispatched from a city to a county and gone around. I mean these are things that. You rely on being there waiting for you when you need them. And that's the, that is one of the differences between when you say a public sector responsibility and a private sector. You can't just just say to yourself, well, we haven't had a large volume of calls. In so let's the, lay off. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in the, in the 911 center on Saturday afternoons, um, the third and, and fourth Saturday of a month, so we're going to put less people on it. No, you can't do that. I mean, we have to be there ready to respond. And um, that's what's great about this community. The commissioners have seen that over the years. They've, they've supported that. The staff you know, continue to try to tweak and make quality um, upgrades for efficiency. And um, that has been a very rewarding experience for me working with all the different departments and getting to know all of the different elements of county government. Because you also indicated, I mean, one of the things that probably would not be anyone's favorite job would be learning rules and regulations, ordinances, resolutions. And those are those govern everything that we do in the public sector so that people know exactly what their money's going for and exactly what the role of county government is. And so those are things that really over time you, 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 you learn, but things can change. So you have to stay up on those. And there are certain things when, you know, when you pick up the phone and you call code enforcement and you want them to come out and, um, you know, take a look at something, you, you want them to be able to do that within the next, you know, ten, 8 to 10 hours, not the next 8 to 10 days. So there are definitely drivers, and most of that comes from the citizens to their commissioner and the commissioners bring that stuff forward to the board on at any tuesday meeting staff is 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 involved with those meetings we're monitoring we're watching um i noticed that i would just happen to you know see there were some no parking um you know area uh, uh agenda item on today's agenda and those aren't driven by by us necessarily the county those are driven by the citizens where they're saying this is dangerous um, you know, can we consider that? And there's a process for those things. So um, I think the cool thing about local government is that citizens that really are engaged, they can be engaged more in what happens at local government because now it's even more um, open and accessible through the virtual meetings, through being able to see things online. And, you know, that transparency is there so people know what's happening. And I think that's probably the biggest argument over the years that we've had from people is I don't know what's happening. And um, that has, especially during COVID, improved because we have been able to get more information out to citizens and more access points for them. I've seen also, you know, it was, it was very disconcerting to me to see some resignations start over the last couple of months. Uh, John Os- Osborne in particular, that's somebody that is, has been involved in a lot of things I've covered over the years. So even though I've only had one or two conversations with him, I have like had this relationship with his work for a long time. 
And I've always been immensely impressed where you, know, you come across some people who are like, wow, how did we ever get this guy in a public sector job like that? How is he not out in the private sector making a ton more money? Um, clearly, you know, sharp, astute. And we have a number of those people. Like That's another thing that, you know, I have continuously been impressed with the level of qualification of the people that I interview at the county and especially department directors who one have a the other part is like the morale and the culture of the county you you always get this feeling that they really really love the community and that, that they're deeply invested in its success and they see their job as a way to contribute to that contribute to the success of the place where they make their home where they raise their kids where, where they hope to retire one day and to see them kind of say you know i can't do that anymore and to one, I look and say, well, we're losing institutional knowledge. And you could speak a little bit to the idea of how important that is and, and how much efficiency, and let's talk about the business side of government, how much is lost in terms of how productive you can be when you lose institutional knowledge. Well, you know, we saw that kind of with the drawdown that, that was forced after the uh, uh, Great Recession. And, and we had to remove, what, what there was a, quite a bit of uh, layoffs had to happen. And, and there was an effect that rippled for a couple of years after that of, yeah, the guy who used to do that's gone now because we had to draw down. And that, that there's a cost to that. It might not be an easily identified financial cost, but there's a big cost in terms of what government is supposed to do. So you have, you know, all these sort of moving parts and expectations. And then if morale starts, if you start to think, if you start to feel like we're the people getting attacked all the time, we're part of the problem and they're going to drain the swamp and, and this idea now that experience is a bad thing, anybody that's been there that long really needs to go, really? Because I kind of think, you know, experience was always taught to me to be important. Um, what, what's your impression of, 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 of that? Well, first, let me say John Osborne is an absolutely uh, amazing young man who, um, whether he's in the public or private sector, is, a, is an extreme asset for Manatee County and any county in the region. And um, John is so knowledgeable and so workable that, um, you know, he, he has, the, because of all the growth that's happening, he has immense opportunity to still be very impactful um, in a in a private sector side, and he's chosen to do that. And he is um, he knows he knows the comprehensive plan. He knows the plan development zoning. I mean, he is just a wealth of knowledge. And that yes is a loss to Manatee County. Um, I think one of the key primary things about John though is he's also a mentor and a teacher. And so while John was at the county, he um, he made a lot of uh, opportunity to make sure that. People know, um, they learn that he explains things and goes through things. And I think just the mere process by which the county goes through to bring items forward for discussion on an agenda, there's background, there's information, you know, kept. But we've been, we had also with Manatee County and, and other surrounding counties, really anywhere, seeing that um, we had anticipated a pretty immense loss in um, institutional knowledge because of just this, this, as you mentioned, the downturn back in 2011 and 12, we lost over 320 positions just in that regard. And so really, as we looked back over that and we started working on what has happened, 
Cumulatively, we've really only brought back about 22 of those positions overall. We've found efficiencies. We took the opportunity to really try and look at the infrastructure that we had for software and uh, uh, GIS systems and everything. And while we've built that up somewhat and more efficiency in that regard, we also have tried to make sure that some of our departments we're able to, to cross train and work collectively. And so, you know, I, I think that, as you mentioned, it's always a loss when you, you lose historical and institutional knowledge. But one of the things I think that, that was important to know about, you know, what I've been doing over the last few years was making sure that um, a lot of our young professionals that we were bringing into the organization, and that was a really good drive that we had, um, going from about 17% um, of, of persons 25 and younger to about 25% where we are now in the last three years is that you bring a lot of young knowledge and, and new ideas into the organization, but you match that up with that historical knowledge. And so both John, myself, Karen Stewart, the current um, interim county administrator, we've all been coaches, mentors, teachers. Um, a lot of your department directors have that same kind of attitude. And so I think that makes Manatee County very unique. But what I wanted to say is that I'd use this um, as a shameless plea for people to come to work for Manatee County Government because it is a fantastic place to be. The The people, as you mentioned, have a real desire to be a community, to do something for their community, and you just can't get that in any job out there. I mean, you know lots of people who work in the private sector and are dedicated to a job, but they're not the owner or they're not someone who's going to move up quickly. And when you're in local government, city government, even state government, you have the ability to make an impact where you may not be able to. And that's across all spectrums of the socioeconomic groups. And so for, for myself, I know I can say, and even I think I could speak for John and, and others with Manatee County government, and my knowledge of theirs is there's a real important element to how you perceive that and what that means to you. Um, I mean, I especially see that now in knowing that, um, you know, we have such a unique amount of people that um, really do care about what's happening in their communities and they're trying to make sure that they're better. And so, I mean, I think that the historical knowledge um, is has been what we have tried to do, knowing we were going to lose some of that, is we've tried to make sure that we have passed that along in both um, efficient type of ways, but also with um, all of our new programming and a lot of um, automation so that people can find records. I know our clerk's office has a huge amount of records. It's all all comes down to, though, do people want to know what the historical knowledge is? Do they want to study it? Do they want to go find it? And ultimately, when you're in a job with local government, it's really one of the things that really provides you with the best aspects of how to make recommendations is to go back and historically look at what has transpired before. All right, two final questions. What You're clearly somebody who loves this community. You said you're not going anywhere. This is your home. Um, you're deeply invested in its success just from having spent your life, you know, working toward it. What is your ad honest advice for whoever gets this job next? And we're recording Tuesday afternoon, so I have a feeling that by the time this comes out tomorrow, we're going to know who that is. Um, what is your advice for them and for the board 
in terms of uh, if they're really invested in excess of this county, what, what would you tell them? Well, I think that um, what I what I can really um, mention in this regard is that again, you have an, a, a large array of senior management in county government that can help with the day to day operations. They know their field. They've successfully been able to you know work through various problems. They they meet on a weekly basis. They're there for knowledge. If you're a new county administrator and you Maybe you lack a full level of background in county government. Um, important things to remember, again, are that the financial aspect is your main requirement when you first come in there. You've got to make sure that the monies that you want to recommend for the board to consider for their budget are coming from the proper source. You mentioned it before. What's the color of money? Where can you use it? How can you use it? Um, you got to be careful if we bought a particular parcel with transportation funds back in, you know, the late uh, 19, uh, like 1998 and 99, we can't just use that for something else today. You know, the requirements mm-hmm. come along with it. So you've got to know, you've got to know what the requirements are. I'd also say that, you know, working with the board, getting to know them, making sure that the board, because the other thing that the county administrator does, and I failed to mention earlier is, they put the agenda together for each board meeting. That's a huge responsibility, but all of that is driven by the directives that come from the board, both in the regular budget process that they adopt annually and the capital improvement plan. So you've got to stay on top of the process of where you are in all your projects. But there is, you know, there's important places to go, Florida Association of Counties, National Association of Counties. There are organizations that primarily help train people if they lack some of the um, institutional knowledge on how to operate government. And so I just really encourage any any individual that may not have that type of background to seek as much information as they possibly can, rely on these professionals that are in the departments that do this day in and day out to give you the full picture And then the other thing I would mention too, Dennis, is that relationships matter. Relationships within our community matter. When you're dealing with other mayors from the municipalities, you're dealing with the sheriff, you're dealing with the with the clerk, you're dealing with all of the other constitutionals, it's important to do a lot of listening first. And when you come into the position, you may know what direction you want to go, you may know what the directive from someone might be, but but you really need to do your homework and listen so that you can make a really good decision. Because again, as a county administrator, there's no one else you can really go to and say, you know, when you're when you've made the final decision, you've got to know and trust that you've made the right one. And finally, if there's county employees listening out there and maybe aren't feeling great about the way things played out and aren't feeling great about the uncertainty of the cloud that they're under right now, and maybe the culture of uh you know, county government right now, uh, what would you say to them? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. The county employees, again, probably the group I miss the most right now, but unbelievably dedicated, um, inspiring, they're in, innovative, um, they're here to serve. And I don't think that anyone coming in 
to the county to run the county would even have any concern about changing that type of direction because these are dedicated individuals that really care about their community and um, they do rely on each other they rely on support but I just say keep up the positive attitudes Um, I'm watching I'm so proud of Manatee County government I'm so proud of those uh, employees I'm so proud of the directions that the projects are going on and um, I will love watching their success Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sherry. I really appreciate it. I know that our readers were very interested in hearing from you. That's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. The podcast keeps growing and growing. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And if you listen to us on one of the podcast platforms, if you could rate us, that would be great as well. And tune in Sunday at thebraintontimes.com for more fact-based news and analysis without an agenda.